You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. We were seeing a lot of headlines like these by late 2016 and into early 2017. Pregnancy, birth, and abortion rates in U.S. adolescents hit historic lows, American Sexual Health Association. Teen abortion pregnancy rates reach historic lows, The Hill. U.S. abortion rates fall to lowest levels since Roe v. Wade, National Public Radio. What got the credit for plummeting teen pregnancy and abortion rates? Increased access to contraception and Very importantly, more federal dollars going to comprehensive sex education programs and fewer federal dollars should have been zero, but a whole lot fewer going to abstinence-only sex education programs. It took a while to get there. It was years before the Obama administration began living up to the promise Obama made during his first inaugural address to restore science to its rightful place, at least where sex ed was concerned. But the science was settled and clear for years. We'd known since early in the George W. Bush administration that abstinence-only sex education programs or sex miseducation programs were not only ineffectual, but they backfired. They made it worse. They drove up the abortion rate. Kids who'd had abstinence-only sex mis-ed programs didn't wait until they were married to start having that one-man, one-woman-for-life sex that abstinence educators presented as the only option. At best, they delayed becoming sexually active for about six months. And while that sounds good, I guess, when these kids became sexually active, the kids who'd had abstinence-only sex ed only, they were less likely to use birth control or condoms since they'd been told in abstinence-only sex miseducation programs that neither worked. And consequently, they were likelier to get a sexually transmitted infection or get pregnant, a.k.a. the original sexually transmitted infection, than their peers who'd had comprehensive sex ed. Well, we can kiss those upbeat headlines goodbye. Because last Friday, the Trump administration announced that it was going to stop spending money on comprehensive sex ed programs. The programs that brought teen pregnancy and abortion rates to historic lows. The programs that brought us those headlines and start spending that money instead on abstinence-only programs. The Hill reports, The Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, announced Friday the availability of grants through the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program, a grant program created under former President Obama that funds organizations and programs working to reduce teen pregnancy rates. Trump's HHS announced, however, that unlike under the Obama administration, grants will be geared toward organizations that teach abstinence education to teens instead of the comprehensive sex ed approach the previous administration supported. Now, this comes as no surprise to anyone who's been paying attention to this. And hey, I do not fault you if you are not paying attention to this. There is so much to pay attention to right now. So many assaults and outrages and scandals that no one can pay attention to everything that's going on or going wrong. But last year, Valerie Huber was made chief of staff for the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health. That's the office that oversees the teen pregnancy prevention programs funded under the TPPP. Quote, prior to coming to HHS, Huber led Ascend, a national abstinence education advocacy group, the Hill reports. 
So kind of like how the Trump administration put oil and gas industry lobbyists in key positions at the Department of Interior, the Department of Energy, and the Environmental Protection Agency, Trump, always tending to his evangelical base, put an abstinence-only sex miseducator in charge of funding the nation's teen sex education programs. Zooming out for a second, Donald fucking Trump with the five children by three different wives, the man who had adulterous affairs with the women who had become his second and third wives, the man who raw dogs porn stars and playmates, and who used to go on Howard Stern to brag about all the women he'd fucked and all the sexually transmitted infections he'd only narrowly avoided. It was his Vietnam, said the draft-dodging philanderer. That man is telling teenagers, one man, one woman for life. That man is telling teenagers to wait until marriage for a second or third, I guess, to have sex. One man, one woman, another woman, another woman for life. Now, screw as I say, not as I screw, Republicans are nothing new. We have seen them before. We are seeing a fresh crop of them now. A whole bunch of pro-life Republican politicians and officials have been caught urging their mistresses to get abortions. The Republican National Committee's National Deputy Finance Chairman had to resign after the Wall Street Journal reported that he'd paid a pregnant Playboy model $1.6 million to go away and abort their unborn child. And a sitting member of Congress, or then sitting since resigned, Pennsylvania Representative Tim Murphy, had to resign after he got caught urging his mistress to get an abortion. And then there's Representative Scott DeJarlis of Tennessee, who was reelected by his pro-life constituents twice after it came out that he pushed both his mistress and his wife to get abortions. I would say something here about being shocked by the hypocrisy, but I'm not. Not anymore. Not where the GOP is concerned. It seems that just as Trump and his supporters are incapable of feeling shame, I am now incapable of being shocked by the hypocrisy, particularly of Donald Trump, his voters, his enablers in the media, his staff, and the Republican Party. But a price will be paid for this bit of hypocrisy. More kids are going to get sexually transmitted infections, which will please many people on the right because they believe kids should be punished for the sin of being sexually active. And the abortion rate will go up, which despite all of their anti-abortion, anti-choice politicking, that is what they want. Just as Republicans run against the debt and the deficit and then, once in power, do everything they can to drive the debt and deficit up so they can keep running against it, Republicans run against abortion and then, once in power, they're going to do everything they can to drive the abortion rate up, abstinence-only sex ed programs, defunding Planned Parenthood, making contraception harder to get, removing the contraception mandate from Obamacare. They're going to drive the abortion rate up just as they've driven the debt and deficit up so they can keep running against it. Because they don't care about the debt or deficits or unborn children or your born children. They only care about power. All right, coming up on today's show, a couple of wedding questions, my favorite kind of questions. I always cry at weddings, not always at wedding questions, but always at weddings. And I chat with Sonny Megatron and Ken Melvin Berg, sexuality educators, hosts of American Sex Podcast and creators of the Sex with Sonny Megatron TV series on Showtime. We talked about what kind of boundaries a sub can set with a dom. We also talked about that sweet, sweet lemonade. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan and company. I'm a late 20s straight cis guy currently living in the Southeast. 
About a month ago, I met someone through our mutual passion for our outdoor sport, one that's male-dominated and in which I've found very hard to meet women, also where I spend almost all of my time. We hung out a lot, but it wasn't until the last week that it became more. After we slept together, she told me that she's also seeing someone else in a nearby city. They have an open relationship, and they only see each other every few weeks. Things were rocky the last time they saw each other, but she's hesitant to end things early or lose him as a friend. Am I okay with that? I felt like I got hit by a train, so I'm pretty sure that means no. We talked, and she said she hasn't been in a monogamous relationship in six years. She isn't jealous and doesn't want to be held to something that she doesn't need for herself. I asked if a monogamous relationship is a possibility, and after debating, then saying no, she's back to trying to decide. I know it seems rushed, but I travel a lot and was planning to leave the area soon. I also have no ties and would happily go wherever she is. I haven't had feelings this strong or found someone so compatible in my entire adult life. She said she has strong feelings for me too and that her heart wants to, but that her brain is telling her not to. Is it fair for me to ask her to be monogamous and take a chance with me? Is there anything else I can do? A male-dominated sport in which it's hard to meet women, my guess is jousting. Non-monogamy and monogamy, binary, you're monogamous or you're not monogamous. However, non-monogamy is a spectrum. There are all sorts of different ways in which a particular couple or thruple or quadruple can fold non-monogamy into their relationship. Different gradations, everything from open the tiniest crack to there's no door at all, wide fucking open, great plains open. That's not really the question though. Your question that you roll it out at the end, is it fair to ask her to be monogamous to me? Yeah, it's absolutely fair to ask her to be monogamous and then she gets to decide if being monogamous is the price of admission that she would like to pay to be with you. And it's just as fair for her to ask you to be non-monogamous for her to be with her and then the price of admission ball is in your court. It might help as you have this conversation to not have a forever conversation about monogamy instead of can you be monogamous to me with the implication that you're talking about the next – you're in your late 20s. You said four, five, six decades, which might cause her to blanch. Why not say can we date and be monogamous to each other for a year, for 18 months, a year and a half and then we can revisit this conversation and we can talk more as we're in this relationship and it's closed initially for my comfort, we can talk more about non-monogamy and that spectrum and why you've preferred non-monogamous relationships and why I've preferred monogamous relationships and then revisit the issue in a year, in 18 months. And at that point, we can opt back into monogamy or we can talk about the non-monogamy spectrum and whether I'm more comfortable opening it a crack then. There are plenty of people out there who would prefer if they had their druthers to be in a non-monogamous, consensual non-monogamy style relationship, but who do monogamy, who commit to monogamy because that's what the person that they fell in love with requires because for the person that they fell in love with, monogamy was the deal breaker. The reverse is also true. There are people out there in non-monogamous relationships because they fell in love with somebody who non-monogamy was the deal breaker and they're doing the non-monogamous thing. Because they gotta, because they value that person more than they value the monogamous ideal. 
and they were able to tackle and deal with their jealousies or their insecurities. And the reality of being in an monogamous relationship wasn't as scary or terrifying or jealousy-inducing or insecurity sandpapering as they thought it might be. So give it a try. Not non-monogamy, this relationship. Just have the conversation about doing it for a while and then continuing to revisit the issue and continuing to make it an opt-in choice. You can opt back into monogamy after a year or 18 months if it's working for both of you. Or after a year or 18 months, you can try it her way for a little while and see if that works too. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 25-year-old woman living in New York City, and I've been listening to your show for about a year. I'm engaged to a great guy, and our wedding is in three months. I know you think that's too young to get married, but we've had such an amazing relationship for the past four years that I never had any doubts about it until now. Part of our relationship is that we're allowed to hook up with other people with full disclosure, but I've only done so on a few occasions. A few weeks ago, I started becoming close with one of my openly lesbian coworkers. We were texting and talking at work at first, and then we both admitted that we were really attracted to each other. She drove me home from work one day, and we spent three hours making out in the car. The next day, she came inside while my fiancé was out, and we had the most amazing sex of my life. Now we talk constantly, and I think that we're falling in love with each other. I know it's only been a short time, and that new relationship energy can make people think and feel crazy things. But I've never felt this way about anyone, and she says neither has she. She knows I'm getting married, but we don't really talk about it. We only talk about how we feel about each other and want to be together. My fiancé sees how much we talk, and I think he's going to get uncomfortable with it soon. What scares me is that nothing he could say would make me stop seeing her, and this totally goes against our entire agreement about being open and honest with each other and him having the ability to end it if it makes him feel neglected or uncomfortable. He's done nothing wrong, and I can't stand the thought of hurting him, but I feel like it's inevitable. Either I break off the wedding now or I end up cheating on him later when he tells me I can't see her anymore. I can't stop thinking that I'm way too young to get married and that there's no way I can go through with this. Everything felt so perfect until I met her, but now I have no idea what to do. Breaking off the wedding would kill my fiancé and both of our families, not to mention having everyone I know hate me and the huge financial expense. But I literally don't think I'll be able to sign a marriage certificate in three months if I still feel the way I do now. Dan, I am totally freaking out. When I'm with her, that's all that I want. I love my fiancé, but I'm getting stuck on all the things that are not perfect about us and having trouble remembering why I thought it was a good idea to get married now. I'm thinking of continuing this juggling act for another month before I make any major decisions, and then maybe the new relationship energy will have worn off and I can think more clearly. Maybe this will just fizzle out or become a casual sexual thing, and I'm just having those premarital jitters. Or maybe I'll have to break off my wedding and completely sabotage my entire life that I used to think was so great. Either way, I can't quit her, and I don't know what to say to either of them. Please help. So you open with, I know you think 25 is too young to get married, Dan, but you're wrong, and this is the right thing to do, and I'm getting married, and oh my god, I don't want to get married, help me, panic, panic. I met this girl, what am I doing? She's perfect, and I love her, and... This person I've known for four years, my fiancé, has flaws. Well, you know what? So does this woman that you're crushing out on so hard. Definitely file this under new relationship energy and under pre-wedding jitters and panic. You've only known this bitch – sorry, this woman's <laughs> – no, let's call her a bitch. 
I don't think she's a bitch, but you can't prove that she's not a bitch. You've only known her for three fucking weeks. You don't know anything about her except that you like the taste of her pussy and she's a good texter. My advice to you would be to chill the fuck out and also go to your fiance and tell him what's going on so that he can help you unpack this. You can also tell him that you're not going to stop seeing this woman at this moment despite the rule that either of you can pull the plug on each other's others. Just tell him that you're in despair and you're panicked and crushed and don't know what to do. You've been with this guy since you were 21 years old. You are 25 years old now. You are about to, in three months' time, make what is supposed to be, ideally, what we all make those commitments hoping that they will be, lifetime. A lifetime commitment. And you're going to mutter vows that you hope will be that we all intend to be a lifetime commitment. And that's scary. I think that's particularly scary when you're just 25. One of two things is going on here. You have met someone who could be the love of your life. And there are many someones out there who could be the loves of our lives. There is no the one, just a lot of 0.75s or 0.64s that we can round the fuck up to one. And you've met one and you are really crushed out on her. And she is not the only one, but perhaps the better one, the one that you would prefer to him and the one that you should be with over him or a one that you should be with over him. Or you're panicking in advance of making this lifetime commitment, which even though you guys have an open relationship, open a crack, some part of your reptile brain, some part of your cultural coding is telling you that once you mutter those vows, it's him and no one else forever and ever and ever and ever for the next five fucking decades, even though there is some allowance in your relationship for others. People go into marriage and, and marriage is a big and scary cultural institution and people go into it and sometimes they think that the ways in which their relationship – and this can be an unconscious thought. The ways in which their relationship was working before they made that commitment can't be carried into the relationship after they make that commitment because those sorts of accommodations or allowances that you and your boyfriend have made with each other, they're not allowed once – You've had the big fucking wedding. And you know what? I'm here from the future to tell you they're still allowed. You still get to make your own way. You still get to make your marriage what you want your marriage to be. Two people who are married to each other, monogamous, not monogamous, children, no children, religion, no religion. You get to make of marriage what you two would like your particular individual marriage to be. Might help to bear that in mind. Also bear in mind. You have only known this woman three fucking weeks. Of course she is perfect. In time, in say four years, you will be as familiar with her flaws and her shortcomings. The things about her character or personal habits or hygiene routines or sexual limitations that annoy you just as you are hyper aware of the things about your fiance that annoy you because you've known him longer. Don't call off this wedding for someone you've known for three weeks. But you need to acquaint your boyfriend with where you're at, your fiancé, with where you're at right now and the panicky stage that you are in and have an honest, no-holds-barred conversation about it. Maybe it's not about calling off the wedding. Maybe it's about delaying the wedding. Maybe those deposits can be carried forward and you can push the date out six months or a year. 
I'm a big fan of nice long engagements, particularly when people are 25 years old and don't know their holes from asses in the ground. Good luck. Take a deep breath. When you are texting this woman or when you are between her legs eating her out or she's between your legs eating her out, enjoy the NRE, enjoy the sex, enjoy the passion, enjoy the connection and remind yourself that it's only been three weeks and she is not perfect and you can't see her imperfections now because it has only been three weeks. If indeed you continue to see her at all, which if I were your fiance, I wouldn't want you to continue to see her at this moment, at this time, while you and I hashed this out and processed it and what it means and what it signifies and what it symbolizes together. And I think it's likelier panic than you've met at the very last moment, immediately before your wedding, the person who is better for you, oneer for you than the man that you intended to marry. Hi, Dan. I'm calling from the Midwest as a millennial woman who is starting to attend a lot of my friends' weddings. And at these weddings, I've noticed the tradition of having guests write down advice for the betrothed. And I have noticed in that advice at each wedding I've gone to, which have been a diverse wedding, queer weddings, weddings with people with large age differences and everything in between, that inevitably people are writing the advice, have sex every day. And this is just really annoying me. And I would hate to see this at my own wedding. As a kinkster who likes to plan out my sex, it takes a while. And when we do it, it takes all day. And so it does not happen on days when we are working. And I just think that it's completely misguided and is actually a form of inevitably shaming the couple if they don't have sex every day when it's meant to seem cool and flippant and sex positive. So I just wanted to get your opinion on this and see if this has been a wedding thing for a long time or if it's part of the irreverence of uh, my generation and to maybe see if we can uh, start combating it because I think ultimately it's shaming people instead of inspiring them to fuck more. I think you're overthinking this. I don't think couples who get messages at their wedding to have sex every day, a few years into their relationship, a few years into their marriage, realize they're not having sex every day and feel terrible about not taking the advice of all the people at their wedding who urge them to have sex every day. That's just people projecting onto the couple their own desires. They wish they were still having sex every day or that they could have sex every day. And in reality, that's just not practical, particularly in a long-term relationship. People tend to have a little less sex over time and people associate that drop-off with marriage or, or, or with making a, a serious commitment. And it ain't necessarily so. There's that beginning stage of relationship when you are fucking every day, when things are fresh and new and you're still – inhaling each other. And I think when people wish that a couple would have sex every day or advise a couple to have sex every day, what they're really doing is encouraging them to remember that feeling, remember that time in their relationship when they just couldn't get enough of each other. I don't think it's a literal prescriptive command to have sex every day. Maybe it's just a gentle reminder. Maybe it's just a gentle suggestion that people remember when they felt that intensely passionate about each other so that they don't take each other for granted and that they have sex as often as they can. And realistically, 
No LTR. No couple that's been together 10 years, 5 years, 20 years is having sex every day. It doesn't hurt to think about that time, to look at your partner and remember that time when you did have sex every day. And if you can remember to remember that time every once in a while, maybe when you haul out your big book of advice people gave you at your wedding, which I promise you no one ever hauls out, maybe that'll inspire you to have sex that day. Not every day, but maybe that day. Don't worry about those couples. No couples are being harmed in the offering of that kind of advice. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because I am starting a new dom-sub relationship with a partner I've been with for a while, and he has experience with this, and I do not. And we were going over rules, and I was told that when being punished, I am not allowed to use a safe word, and that if I am going to be a good sub, I have to receive anal, which was one of my hard limits. I am new to this but feel very uncomfortable, and I'm wondering your thoughts. Joining me to help tackle this question, Sunny Megatron and Ken Melvoinberg, sexuality educators, hosts of American Sex Podcast, and creators of the Sex with Sunny Megatron TV series on Showtime. Hey, Sunny. Hey, Ken. Hey, Dan. So this question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have some thoughts. Well, first of all, to, to the caller, you know, she said she doesn't have experience in BDSM, but she definitely has experience in spotting red flags. And caller, your instinct is right. You should feel uncomfortable. You know, consent is the cornerstone of BDSM, and it doesn't matter if it's a scene that you're, you know, doing for an hour or if it's a 24-7 type of relationship, which is, this is what sounds like that is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in these types of BDSM relationships, there's a really fine line between BDSM and abuse. It's a slippery slope. And there are abusers out there who get into the BDSM space because it's a cover. It allows them to exactly. abuse someone and get away with it. I'm glad you have some thoughts and I want you to unpack them because my only thought was run. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It is It is absolutely run. Not a like, well, maybe he doesn't know. No, 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 no. You know, First and foremost, as a submissive, it is always, always your right to clearly be able to state your boundaries and not be pressured to have them cross because your dominant is telling you, quote, that's what a good submissive does. Mm. That is basically a bunch of crap, you know, and in these 24-7 relationships, it is common, even in some of the healthy relationships, for people to say, well, you know, we play without safe words. However, first of all, that's assuming that you have a relationship with your dominant that is absolutely 100%. You know, you're confident in each other. You communicate well. You have each other's best interests in mind. And even in those cases, when these people say, we play without safe words, you still have to have some kind of caveat where as a submissive, if you need to reinforce a boundary or revoke consent, you have to be able to do that. Whether it's a traditional safe word, whether it's waving jazz hands and calling a timeout or whatever it mm-hmm. is, you have to both agree that there's a way to do that and that you'll both respect yeah, the, it when the it pe- happens. The so, people I know in, in BDSM relationships who say they play without safe words know each other so well. And you know the top is so uh, familiar with the bottom's preferences and limits that they – it's not that they don't have a safe word. It's that – they don't have to articulate the safe word during the scene because the top knows when to push and pull back. And there's just such a, a bond of trust. And someone who tells you, oh, yeah, you're not allowed to rule out getting fucked in the ass. How can you trust that person enough to go without a safe word during punishment or anything else? Like this is 
this is bullshit. And, and, and the caller says that she's been in this relationship for a while and now they're moving into a, D, a DS relationship, dom-sub relationship. And whoever he was before, and maybe you're both inexperienced and he's been reading a lot of bad neckbeard BDSM writing online by people who actually haven't had BDSM <laughs> sex or relationships. Uh, if you're both novices moving into this, he's doing it wrong. And you guys need to find a mentor and some better writing and instruction around how to have a healthy, successful uh, BDSM relationship. Because if it was a healthy, successful relationship before, and this is the shit he's pulling when you're moving into DS, it's going to end and it should end. And you should run if he continues to press his case around your ass and around punishing you without a safe word. Now, there's there's a, a kind of an interesting subnote to all of this, and that is uh, occasionally there are people that don't use safe words, but it's because every word is a safe word. So if you say something like no or don't or stop, the top will no or don't or stop. Uh, we, the, the place that we get the words dominance and submission in reference to BDSM are from Professor William Moulton Marston, the guy that created the lie detector machine and uh, Wonder Woman, the comic <laughs> Uh-huh. We've talked about and him on the show. he actually used this. Yeah, he was, he, was a, he was a Harvard-trained psychologist that came up with the DISC theory, which is dominance and influence, submission, and compliance. Now, what he was looking at is two factors. Are you, are, is, is what you're doing active and passive, active or passive? Active would be dominant, passive would be submissive, and within that is what you're doing agreeable or disagreeable. So if what you're doing is agreeable, that's submission. If what you're doing is disagreeable to you, that is forced compliance, which means you're doing this against your will. Now, there are a couple of easy ways to sort of eliminate this. First and foremost, everyone should realize there's no one true way. The second thing is, and we teach this in all of our classes, everybody should go through a yes, no, maybe list with their partner mm -hmm. where you go through and you talk about, like, do you like anal? Yes, no, or maybe. And in that case, when somebody says no, the no means no. A maybe leaves open for possibility. But you can go through everything that you might want to do to check compatibility for that. And Sonny and I have actually developed a system to evaluate people even further. And we call it our rough BS system. And what we do is we have people evaluate on a scale of one to 10, how much they like these things to figure out if they're compatible with the person that they're playing with. Mm -hmm. So uh, the R stands for on a scale of one to 10, how much do you like to be restrained? The O, how much do you like to be owned by another person? U, how much do you like to be used by another person? The G is how much do you like to be given away? H is how much do you like to be humiliated? B, how much you like to be beaten? And S, how much you like to serve others? Now, although these two systems aren't going to be perfect in and amongst themselves, it's a really good way to evaluate people and to see if there's commonalities there without you know violating somebody's consent. It all comes down to communication. That What you just described is just a way to get two people talking to each other. And sometimes people who want to do crazy, kinky things – it's it's all they can do to get the ask out of their mouth. I've always wanted to try this. I'm kind of into this. And then they can't – then they shut down. They can't continue to have the conversation because of kink shaming and slut shaming and just insecurity and fear of being judged. And, uh -huh. and the trick is you have to keep having that conversation or you're going to get hurt. And in having that conversation, if someone reveals themselves to be uh, an unsafe top or an unrealistic bottom and they're out there too – that means you either need to get out and find somebody who's better at it, get yourselves to a munch and learn more about it from people who know what they're doing and know what they're talking about, uh, or just not, not with that person. 
because you there, right. you could wind yep. up Agreed. you know helpless at the hands of an abuser. Um, one more tip I you know I have from friends you know who talk about talk with me about them doing no safe word scenes is often with tops who will give a bottom a choice or uh, several choices of several unpleasant things. Rather than saying, I'm going to do X and you have to take it, the top will in a sexy way say, we're going to do X or we're going to do Y. You pick. And it gives the bottom some control. And maybe the X option is something the top is familiar enough with the bottom to know that they like and enjoy. And Y may be something more challenging or that they haven't tried yet or is a little scarier, but maybe they've talked about it and the bottom has been intrigued but a little nervous. And in the moment in the scene, giving the bottom – Options and choices, which can seem counterintuitive to people who don't know anything about BDSM, uh, can allow a top to explore and a bottom to reach and for boundaries to be tested and maybe pushed a little bit with the bottom still having some control, even in the absence of uh, a safe word. But getting back to the Mm -hmm. caller, she clearly wants a safe word and doesn't feel comfortable not having one that she can use during quote unquote punishment. And he has no respect for your hard limits. Getting fucked in the ass is a hard no for you. And he wants to tear that down and tell you you're not a good sub. What he's told you, anybody who says you're not a good sub if you won't act has just told you that they're a terrible dom. An inept, mm-hmm. incompetent yeah, dom and likely an abuser flying under the radar of uh, being into BDSM when all they're actually into is wrecking someone. Absolutely. So run. Nailed it. Run. <laughs> are, are we all in agreement on run? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm in my gut is it's not like I don't think he's a top that's like, oh, he made a mistake and just read Fifty Shades of Grey and didn't understand BDSM. My gut is he's a manipulator, run. Uh anybody who tells you that there is one true way in BDSM is gonna be completely full of shit because only you can define those terms for yourself with partners that you have throughout your life and that is going to change even with the same partner um it's like you mentioned earlier Dan, that communication is the key to any kind of relationship even more so when you're doing fun sexy activities that are a little bit strenuous or outside of the norm you always have to revisit that even for you know psychological and physical reasons both so tell us quickly about uh sex with sunny megatron on showtime for folks who haven't caught it yet yeah so uh, we have a series on Showtime that we created, produced, and I host called Sex with Sunny Megatron on Showtime. You can get it on demand. And it is uh, a dive into all sorts of alternative sexual practices, but in a, hey, we're all freaks and it's all okay <laughs> sort of way. A lot of prior shows, you know, when you look at like HBO's Real Sex, it was kind of a flyover like, look at these weird people. And you know what? We're all the weird people. And weird is pretty normal and okay. That's our friend. Right. To be honest, it's sort of a mix between uh, the Mythbusters and uh, HBO's Real Sex. So we, we look at the science of sexuality. We look at ways to do sort of adventures with your partner or partners and all sorts of alternative sexuality in the science of sexuality. Yeah, so we had a clown orgy. We had a piss play <laughs> party. Uh, we learned about the G-spot. I mean, all sorts of different things. We we took a, a squirt and urine to the lab to decide once and for all, is squirt urine or is it not? We have a lot of wait, great wait. stuff we gotta, on the we show. Gotta so. st- we got to stop there. So squirt urine, which is it? It is not urine. 
which is a common misconception. However, I usually tell people when it comes to figuring out anything in sex, is it this or is it that? I need to know definitely. Who the hell cares? Is it hot? Yeah. So can I uh, ask you guys to stick around for one more question? Absolutely. Hey, Dan, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I have a huge question. Reading this deal dossier, the supposition is that Trump had prostitutes pee on him and pee on the bed where Obama was. And I don't understand the pee fetish. And I was hoping that you could explain it. Why would anyone want to be peed on? What is appealing about that? What is sexy about that? What is attractive? I guess the warmth is the only thing I can guess. And in Russia, it's pretty cold. So maybe there's that. But otherwise, just explain to me and everyone else, like, why would you want to be peed on? Please explain it. Is it a power thing? I just, I don't get it. So it would be great if you could kind of do some psychoanalyzing and enlighten me. All right. What's sexy about getting peed on? Oh, my gosh. Alphabetically or chronologically, there <laughs> is so much wonderful things. I understand you are personally a fan, Ken. <laughs> I, I am personally a fan across the board. In fact, with our show, Sex is Sunny Megatron, we actually not only filmed at one Eagle, we filmed at two. The one that we used in San Francisco, uh, we did an entire episode just on pee play. I and mean, we were one of the first people to bring that to uh like any kind of TV show in quite a while that I can imagine. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the last time anybody did pee, but the question was, what do we find enjoyable about people or what does anybody find enjoyable? Well, there's, there's three things that people actually very much enjoy about it. Now, first and foremost, uh, a lot of people that uh, enjoy this do it in a way where they can experience it as a wet and messy feeling it is amazing to get peed on. It's something that is very primal when it comes to dominance and humiliation. And there is nothing that is as dominant as literally marking your territory. So this is one <laughs> of the primal things about this play mm -hmm. is that it's just something that's so nasty. And, and it's something that, you know, you're, you're saying this is mine, this guy, this girl, they are mine. They are my territory. Um, but in addition to that, people that enjoy it uh, may simply like to watch piss play. There's a whole there's two subsections of people that just enjoy watching it. Uh, there's the people that uh, sort of like Trump who want to watch other people pee on each other. Uh, although I'm not sure that was a true fetish as much as it was something that he was doing to denigrate the Obamas in Russia. I don't think that he's somebody who is a true connoisseur of the sweet lemonade as much as uh, somebody like myself. The sweet lemonade. Uh, Do we have to call it that? That sounds so much gross. I mean, <laughs> at least to me, that sounds so much grosser than like, I drank his piss. I lapped up his sweet lemonade. It sounds a little, the latter just like makes me uh, bump out a little bit. But but that's your preferred term. But, but for and that's some fine. people, yeah, for some people, that's the point. It's that's, so yeah. gross. It's so disgusting. It's so taboo that that's what draws them to it. So, and there's, and it's interesting because there's people that like the feeling of it first and foremost, that's mm -hmm. one of the things. So there's the humiliation factor. There's the watching, there's the actual physical feeling of either getting peed on your genitals or on your face or on your chest, or even in your mouth and swallowing it. There's also a huge fetish in Japan of piss and desperation 
And you, you've, and I'm sure you've seen this sort of person before when you're on the L in Chicago or you're in, you know, some kind of public transportation in Seattle and you're seeing somebody kind of like shuffling back and forth, jumping up and down. They've been at the office all day long and they want to go <laughs> pee at their house and the, they're doing the piss dance, right? Like right. So they're, they're, because they're uncomfortable. There's an entire fetish based on that called piss desperation in people specifically. It's Japanese businessmen that are targeting it's mostly hetero men that are doing this and they're targeting business women coming home from their jobs on japanese public transportation i had an ex call me once uh on the private line for some private sex advice because he after me dated a guy who i think was into piss desperation he wanted to be stood in a corner and not allowed to use the bathroom until he wet himself and would get increasingly desperate and that was the, the turn on for him and my ex didn't know quite how to fold that into the relationship. Uh, two things before we get off this subject, before I let you guys go. Um, you said sure. you, can't, you didn't think that there'd been an episode on television about this in a while. The, the only one that comes to mind for me is an episode of Sex in the City from many, many years ago where uh, oh, that's right. Sarah Jessica Parker's character was briefly dating a guy who was into piss and it was a disqualifying fetish. It was a reason to, to end the relationship because it was so crazy uh, and, and out there. And when it comes to piss, I have this hunch that, you know, like as with most fetishes and kinks, there are more men who aren't into it. There's something about the male brain or male sexuality or male entitlement that just guys are more in touch with their kinks, I think, earlier. And it's been my experience in like examining the the lesbian BDSM fetish community versus the gay male BDSM fetish community that like there's a lot of piss play in gay male BDSM and not much in lesbian land. And a lot of guys who are in straight relationships who are into piss or have a relationship that includes some piss plates, the guy who instigates it. And I think a lot of it has to do with pee is a toy for guys. You draw your name in the snow. You see how high you can arc it into the air when you're competing with friends, um, when, you're, when you're very little. And, and, and there's this familiarity and intimacy and play with pee when you're a little boy that just gives you a comfort level around it or, or perhaps the propensity to fetishize it after you hit puberty. I absolutely mm -hmm. agree with that. In fact, as a young man, I often thought the world was my urinal because I had this set up as a game from the time when I was learning to potty train. And I don't know if your mom or dad did this with you, Dan, but did you do the Cheerios thing where your, where your mom or dad would put the Cheerios in the toilet bowl and then you had to pee in the Cheerios and try and sink them into the toilet to switch <laughs> from potty training to actual like uh, big boy peeing. And now big boy peeing for me means a lot of different things, which is interesting because I identify primarily as a top but I like both peeing on people and getting peed on. I have no, you know, compunctions at all about yelling at a sub, sub to fuck me in the ass or piss on my face, even though those are things that could be looked at as a submissive act. Uh, it, it's something that I think that because I enjoy it, they like the, the approach that I have to getting the fetish resolved in the way that I want to have it done. And you can make this a submissive or a dominant act either way. Uh, an, important, uh, an, important it, note, it, an important note for people like the caller who are so unfamiliar with the idea of piss as a, a, a fetish or a form of sex play is people often when you say, oh, you know, piss play, they imagine that first thing in the morning after eight or 10 hours of sleep piss dark and stinky or maybe after an asparagus feast piss, you know, green and stinky. Uh, after you know, uh, two or three beers or a couple of vodka sodas, it's just hot water. It's really not very dark. Right. It's really not very smelly. And that's typically the kind of piss that people incorporate into piss play. Now, some people are into the stinky shit. Most people – some people are into the shit shit too. But most people into piss are into the milder variety, the late evening after a pitcher of beer in the bar variety 
of piss, not the stank I, piss. I would, I would totally agree with that. And it's funny because we were at AVN just after the election last year, and I actually brought a Donald Trump mask with me. And this was just after it came out that he did the thing in Russia with getting watching people get peed on. Was, wait, wait, wait. Was, we don't uh, want to get sued by the yeah. Trump fucking organization. Oh, was alleged yeah. to have done that thing in the Steele dossier. Alleged. Alleged. Yes, absolutely alleged. Nothing actually did that. Thank you for calling me out on that. Putin so has something Donald on Trump. Trump. Putin has some form of compromise on Trump. It could be that. Uh, but, and there, a, a P-tape has been invoked, but a P-tape has not yet been produced. Fingers crossed. Anyway, that go is on. absolutely mm-hmm. correct. That is absolutely correct. I, every year at ABN, we have a clown orgy that we attend. And this year, I thought because it would be funny do. just because of the allegation that the that 45 had had anything to do with piss play so i brought a donald trump mask with me i wore a uh, i was in clown drag and i decided to have a stream of people pun intended yeah. <laughs> pee on me and so what i did was i was in the clown outfit got into the tub put the donald trump mask on wrote the patriarchy on my leg and red lips in red lips yeah and there was uh like five to six people at a time going into the tub peeing directly on me specifically on the mask it was a very cathartic thing to do the night of the inauguration we were all really (laughs) bummed out yeah and one last thing that i might add in, in addition to like drinking lots of beer and peeing and sort of watering it down one of the other interesting things that you can do with piss play is drinking beet juice, and you could actually change the color of it. If you drink a lot of beet juice, you could actually turn your pee red. And this can make for... Great mindfuck, yeah. yeah. Sort of mindfuck <laughs> or funny experiences all the way across the board. Wow. Because if you drink pure beet juice and a lot of it, it will turn bright red, and it will look like there's blood in your urine, even though your urine is probably healthier than normal. All right, I got to say, bringing Donald Trump to a clown orgy, that's got to be the new bringing coals to Newcastle or sand to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Sunny Megatron, Ken Melvoin, Berg, Sexuality Educators, hosts of the American Sex Podcast. If you like Savage Love and Savage Lovecast, you will love the American Sex Podcast. Also check out their show on Showtime, Sex with Sunny Megatron. Sunny and Ken, thank you so much. That was a blast. Please come back. Thank, thank you, you so much, Dan. We will. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy Out Rescue. I'm calling um, because I'm having an interesting experience in the sauna. I'm a 27-year-old cis woman. And after about being in the sauna for 15 to 20 minutes, I start to become like literally stimulated. And I don't tense my legs up in the sauna or stretch or anything. I'm usually sitting and reading a book. And the most I found online is that, you know, people having sex in the sauna and they have an orgasm or sometimes after a really intense leg day, they'll squeeze their legs together and they're able to like have a really easy orgasm. But I'm, I'm just sitting and reading and I'm suddenly super stimulated and so I was wondering if you know if anyone else has had this experience or if I don't know I I don't really know where to go because Google didn't have an answer for me trigger warning grandpa's about to talk about his own boners so years ago these they don't exist anymore so this doesn't happen to me anymore but every time I went to New York City and I got into one of those giant New York City yellow cabs People who are old enough to remember, they had those giant back seats. It was like a giant couch in the back of a cab. They were green leather. Every single time I was in New York City and I got into one of those giant yellow cabs and sat down and and leaned back in that seat, I got a boner. I don't know why. I didn't get into the cab thinking sexy thoughts. The cab drivers, rarely in my experience, were particularly attractive. I would – it would happen when I was with friends, when I was – going somewhere. It happened when I was going to a fucking funeral in New York City. Just happened. I had this random, uncontrollable 
physiological response to being in the backseat of a great big New York City cab. Didn't happen in London cabs. Doesn't happen in Ubers or Lyfts or the yellow cabs in New York City these days. Just those cabs. Those cabs that were featured prominently on the David Letterman show's original opening sequence. And they're all gone. It doesn't happen to me anymore. Why did that happen? I have no idea. And I don't think I ever will. No. It was just a random erotic association. A couple of neurons in my brain made one day when they slammed into each other. And I had this automatic physiological response to that environment. And I think that's what's happening for you in the sauna. Of course, you're naked and you're getting heated up. You're reading a book. You're distracting yourself. You're not in the moment in your body. And yet you have this association with those spaces at those times, that temperature, and suddenly you are aroused. It just kicks in. It does something for you. Who knows why? Don't torture yourself wondering why. Just enjoy it. It is a perk of getting your ass to the gym and having a good workout and then going to the sauna and having a little relax. That's how I regarded it after a while, after worrying about it and stressing out about it and thinking I had a cab fetish. After a while, I was just like, all right, this is what happens to my dick when I get in one of these cabs. And then those cabs went away and it stopped. I'll never know. It's a mystery. Same for you. You will never know. It is a mystery. Hey, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old cisgender female from upstate New York. I've been in a mutually monogamous heterosexual relationship with a 30-year-old guy for three and a half years. I'm calling because in the last three and a half years, he has eaten my pussy precisely zero times. We talked about it recently, and he admitted that he hasn't given oral sex to anyone since he was about 15 years old. He said that the barrier is entirely mental. He's afraid of being bad at giving oral, which then brings up a lot of performance anxieties, which he makes him want to stick with what he knows. But when I asked how a person might get better at giving oral, or at least get over the performance anxiety portion of that... Uh, if they never do it, he did not have an answer. Part of the problem, I think, is that I don't have a lot of experience to offer. Not only have I never eaten pussy myself, so no firsthand experience on what that's all about, but I've had two, only two other sexual partners in my life, both of whom were a bit older and much more experienced than my boyfriend. So how to eat me out is not something I've ever had to teach a guy how to do before. It's also been four years since I've gotten oral sex. I'm not sure I could exactly write a handbook on that now anyways. I guess it'd be one thing if he was repulsed by the idea of giving oral sex or something like that. I have straight female friends who don't like giving blowjobs. And while that's probably not ideal for them or their partners, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But he promises that's not what's going on, and I have to take him at his word. So, any tips? He has performance anxiety. You might want to tell him that the crappiest oral, the worst oral, is the oral you don't get at all. And some oral is going to be better than no oral. So, whatever oral he performs, you can overcome his performance anxiety, overcome his fear of being bad at it right out of the gate. That oral that you're going to get for the very first time Is it going to be better than the oral you're not getting now? I suspect, however, that he is indeed repulsed by the idea, but he doesn't want to say that because that will make him a shitty, sexy dude who won't eat pussy, particularly if you're going down on him and sucking his dick. And so rather than cop to his discomfort around eating you out, he's telling you he's just afraid he's going to be really bad at it. And that's the only reason he's eating you out. He has no problem with... Eating you out in concept, no problem with performing cunnilingus 
as an idea, he's just so convinced or so worried that he's going to be bad at it. They can't bring himself to do it for the very first time. I would remind him or I would call his bluff and tell him that he probably wasn't very good at PIV intercourse the first time he attempted it either. And yet he did that. So he was obviously motivated enough to try PIV without any experience and overcome his performance anxiety because the desire was there. So the issue here is the desire probably isn't there. He doesn't want to. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say you have this conversation with him and he is finally down to try. You get it through his head that the worst oral is the oral you never get. He doesn't have to do much. You can lay him down and sit on his face and you can grind. You don't want to bloody his lips by grinding them into his teeth. But you can drive the experience. You can take your pleasure from his tongue and from his face while fingering your clit a little bit, moving your clit back and forth between your own fingers and his lips and his tongue and just take control of it. Maybe he's worried about being in charge of providing you with an orgasm in this way. Maybe you're one of those women who takes a long time to come or you need a particular kind of stimulation and focused in a particular way as most women do, as most men do in order to come. And he's worried that he won't be able to bust those moves with his tongue and his lips and his face. And if you incorporate his tongues and lips and face into a masturbatory grind as you kneel over his face, maybe he'll have less concern. Maybe he'll feel that it's not all on him to provide you with a spectacular experience. If indeed the issue is performance anxiety and I have my doubts. Hi, Dan. I've been married to my husband for almost 14 years. We've been together almost 22. So I've realized in the last few years that my preferred model for relationships is polyamory. But my husband's is monogamy. Now, I've always been open about who I am and what I want from him and from others. I didn't always have the words to describe what I wanted. And once I found them, I suddenly felt that I wasn't a bad person who was incapable of being loyal. That was wonderful, but really only to a degree. My husband's been extremely willing to try and let me have what I need for my happiness. But ultimately, this doesn't work for him. And now we can't even have hypothetical or general conversations about these things without it getting very, very unpleasant. My husband knows that no one can be everything to anyone. He knows that loyalty is not limited to sexual loyalty. And I've worked hard at giving him what he needs to feel that he's truly the primary and that I'm not interested in leaving, just interested in building our family in this particular way. But despite years of trying, he can't manage his jealousy and it's only gotten worse. I've listened to your show for a while, and I've heard you talk about different relationship models and how one should handle that in young relationships. Put your cards on the table, make it clear what the cost of admission is. But Dan, my husband's already in the circus, and he's been here for almost half his life. I can't just announce that this is the cost of admission, and if he doesn't like it, he can leave. We have a grade school-aged child, a 22-plus year life that we've built together. We own a house, a car, et cetera, et cetera. He's a good man. He's a fantastic father. We just very much do not agree on this aspect of our marriage, and it's causing an increasing amount of friction in our lives. I don't want to walk away from the family and the life that I've built, but I'm tired of not being happy and fulfilled in my life. Life is too short to not be at least content if not happy. We are in couples counseling in the hopes of being able to strengthen those things in our marriage that need strengthening, but I'm not sure that any degree of strengthening is going to bring him around to the idea of polyamory He's just not built that way. 
he's already been somewhat polyamorous under duress for years, and he's never been able to come around to the idea. Not sure what to think. Really not sure what to do. I had a follow-up question for you. There's a detail that I needed, uh, that I felt I needed before I could offer you any decent advice. At the top of your call, you say that you realized in the last few years that you were polyamorous, that a polyamorous relationship model is right for you and what you need to feel fulfilled. And then toward the end of the call that you say that your husband, who's been struggling with this, has been poly under duress, PUD, uh, for years. And I'm curious as to whether this husband being poly under duress is poly in theory or practice. Have you had other partners or are you guys still in the kicking around the concept stage? I've had other relationships with people that were emotionally very intense. Mm-hmm. Only a couple of those had any physical aspect to it, though. And your husband knows or doesn't know that there's a physical component to these connections? He knows most all of the details. He knows the important details. Okay. Yeah, some people, and that's fine. Like some people would hear that and think, oh my God, then you're withholding. But there are people in open relationships who don't want to be told everything, who just want either the bare outline or their DAD tears who don't want any details. They don't want to know what's happened. So I don't think the fact that there's things he doesn't know, all the details, that that necessarily is a problem. The problem here is that he doesn't want to be in an open relationship. He doesn't want to be in a polyamorous relationship. And that's what you need. And you're reaching the kind of somebody's got to pay the price stage that somebody's going to lose. And the only question is, is it going to be him or is it going to be you? Which one of you is willing to pay the price of admission that's going to have to be paid for you two to stay together? Yeah. They're called. I think the challenge, the challenge has been that I feel that he has tried to pay the price for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, But it feels to me that I feel in some ways that it's my turn to try and pay the price um, but, but it's never that I've like ignored the need or the desire or the want to try and be monogamous. I've just not been successful or never felt satisfied or fulfilled by it. So I, yeah. I don't know how to do that without denying a significant portion of who I feel I am and what will make me happy. Right. And, that, and, and that's why I scream and yell about non-monogamy, monogamy, people knowing themselves before they make a commitment, before they scramble their DNA together. And there's so much cultural pressure on people to be monogamous because monogamous is the right thing to do. It's what good people do. It's what true love means. And then you get people making monogamous commitments and sometimes scrambling their DNA together before they realize that they just can't do monogamy. Not because there's anything wrong with them, but because monogamy is wrong for them. And yet the culture has sort of bullied them into a corner where they made a monogamous commitment to a lovely person that they love very much And now to be true to themselves and to be happy and feel fulfilled, they're either going to have to betray who they are and what they need and betray themselves or betray their partner in some fundamental way. You know, if you didn't have a kid, this would be a lot easier and there'd be a lot less (laughs) blood on the ground potentially. You know, the, the, the stakes are higher and I think kids' needs are important and I think stability and constancy are virtues that parents kind of owe their kids now, when ter- oh, I completely agree. When Terry and I were about to have uh, adopt together, oh God, 20 years ago, we were monogamous at the time and the difficult convo we had to have was if I cheat or you cheat, we can't break up. And for Terry at that time, in, in, you know, infidelity, cheating was a breakup level offense. It was a relationship terminating offense. And I, my 
argument with Terry at that time was then we shouldn't adopt because as gay men, as a male couple, the odds that one or the other or both of us are going to cheat at some point are 100%, my professional and personal opinion. And, and, and that was really what we had to resolve before we had a kid. But you didn't resolve that before you had no. a kid. So now you have to ch- attempt to resolve it in the wake of having a kid. And I'm not faulting you for that. I'm faulting the culture that pushes people to make uh, monogamous commitments without first encouraging them to really sit with whether monogamy is right for them and is a commitment that they should make. Sure. <sighs> and it's something that we, we were, we were together as a committed couple for eight years before we got married. Mm-hmm. And then we were married for four years, I think before we had our son, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this wasn't something that we decided quickly, and, and I've never hidden who I am from my husband. I mean, he's well, he, he has him. said he did, and of course, in his angriest moments, he says things like, "Well, I figured you would change." <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. <and> so, <laughs> you know, but th- that's all what we're trying to work on in counseling. <laughs> yeah, that, that is something to examine in counseling because sometimes people—it's yeah. not just the culture that, bo- that that paints us into a corner, but a partner who paints us into a corner. You know, and yeah. it's. I usually hear about this with women doing it to men that I thought once we had three kids or two kids, then you would get over this desire to ever have a three way or this desire to do this kind of crazy sex that I was okay with at the start. Cause I thought you would grow up and get serious and we wouldn't have to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And now I, you know, I can play the kid card. This is the thing that, that, that people will do. That wasn't fair for your husband to do that to you. So maybe it is a price that he's going to have to pay, something he's going to have to live with. That said, I, I want to jump back to something you said just a minute ago, that he's paid the price for a while. And you kind yeah. of feel like maybe it's your turn to pay the price. And I want to encourage you to really think about paying that price, about shutting the relationship down again. Because sometimes what helps somebody who's PUD, poly under duress, get to the place where it's no longer under duress anymore, is to feel like they have some control, to feel like they're being heard, to feel like their comfort uh, and their emotional security matters to their partner who would rather be poly. And one way the poly partner demonstrates that to the one who is not there yet or may never be there is to shut it down for a while. Because it is a way of saying, look, this is how I'm going to shut this off and we're going to focus on each other. I don't think I can shut this off forever, but I'm shutting it down for now for you so we can continue to talk and work on this. And, because often what you know the person who's poly under duress feels like they have no control they're poly under duress and right. for them to have a restored sense of control that this is something that we're doing together and we can it can be turned off we can turn off the spigot for a while for my comfort and i can then feel again that yeah i am the priority and i am the primary and there may be a time when we need to be exclusive to really prove that to each other. And, and, you know, I'm not just telling you to do this because, you know, strategically, maybe this will get you to the place where you can be poly again in practice no, I know. and it'll bring him along. But realistically, that is how a lot of people get brought along. Like they take a few steps out of the sure. monogamy closet and it's not their idea and they get cold feet and they're scared and they're insecure and they insist and they go back into the monogamy closet, but they keep talking and then they're ready to step out again, rather ready to give their partner that license again because they feel like they have the power to pull it back if they need to. 
And the only way to prove to someone that they do have the power to pull that back if they need to is to let them pull it back a couple of times. Yeah, that makes good sense. I, I only hope that the other things in our marriage that are leading us to counseling, because this is not what's leading us to counseling, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, are the kinds of things that we are able to strengthen so that I do feel that I can be fulfilled in this marriage independent of anything else. Um, and this is because this is, you know, as all mature relationships go, and I'm sure you know as well, complicated it's subtle and it's multifaceted there's never one explanation for dissatisfaction yeah it's also one of those things that you file under irreconcilable differences if they're if somebody can't yeah. get it. <laughs> and i feel that's where i'm at right now and i'm trying to figure out how to reconcile it or not i'm not getting younger <laughs> um none of and, us are but yeah it's been yeah. my experience getting older that it, it not doesn't necessarily close down all your options true presents you with exactly new ones right. True. Well, Very true. Good luck. I don't want to keep you from your, your kid any longer. It sounds like you were making dinner <laughs> when, I, when I got you on the phone. I appreciate you making a little time. Quite all right. I appreciate you calling me and following up. Good luck. Hey, Dan. 27-year-old cis queer poly woman from Portland, Oregon. For the past five years, I've been exploring kink in various levels of intensity. I found I love impact play, and pain has been a huge turn-on for me. However, in the past several months, I've felt nervousness and not turned on in regards to kink play. I think I know why. I was sexually assaulted about two and a half years ago and didn't name what was done to me as sexual assault until this past summer. This has greatly affected my sex life. Additionally, a number of months ago, a dear long-term partner and I went to a fun, sexy kink event, and after, I felt like he was not as present with me as I would have liked. We've talked about that night a lot, and he is extremely supportive of me in regards to my comfort level with kink. Our sex life has transitioned to way more vanilla than in the past. This same partner and I are planning on attending a kink weekend in a couple weeks. Another partner of his will also be there. I've been really back and forth about wanting to go to this event. I was very excited about it when I bought the tickets months ago, but now I'm not so sure especially knowing that my partner's attention will be split between what he wants to do at the event, spending time with his partner who is visiting, and spending time with me. Right now, I'm leaning toward not going for my own peace of mind, but I also want to re-enter the world of kink, especially with this partner with whom I felt so much depth and vulnerability through kink. It feels like a, a grieving process, like I've lost something that used to bring me so much joy. I want to find my way back into kink, and despite having a sense of why I feel the way I do, I don't know how to find that joy and excitement again. Do you think going to this event could be useful for me as far as more exposure into the kink world and exploration of my own kink expression? And any advice for how to find my way back into something I've enjoyed so much in the past? I think going to this kink retreat or kink weekend with your partner and someone else that he's going to be paying attention to, his other partner, is going to be a mistake. You went to that previous kink event and the aftermath, sounds like you had some fun while you were there, but the fallout from it wasn't good for you as uh, as partners, wasn't good for your sex life. 
because he wasn't, you said, present enough for you. Sounds like he didn't come through with the kind or degree or duration of aftercare that you required after whatever it is that you two got up to at this kink event. The odds that he won't be able to be as present for you as you need him to be at a three-day kink event where he's splitting his attentions between you and his other partner seem really high. And if you guys are still reeling from the damage done by your previous outing at a kink event, going to this three-day kink event where there are going to be multiple opportunities for him to fail to come through for you with the aftercare and the attention that you need after a scene because he's splitting his attentions between you and his other partner, it just seems so – the odds just seem so high that you would be potentially setting yourselves back or setting yourself back even further. As for getting back into kink after the realization that an encounter you had a couple of years ago uh, was sexual assault, after naming it as sexual assault, I, I think you have to consciously name the things that you're doing in a kink space that are consensual as consensual because that is the difference between rape, sexual assault, violation and not rape, not sexual assault, not violation. It is possible for two people to have what if you looked at a still image or a silent film of would look like vanilla intercourse. That is sexual assault because one person is being forced against their will to have what would look like to someone if they just saw a still image as just plain old vanilla sex that nobody could possibly object to. Well, if one person is doing it against their will or under duress – it is sexual assault or it is rape. And what makes it sexual assault or makes it rape is not impact play, is not bondage, is not kink. And what makes something a violation, what makes something a sexual assault or rape is not the activities on the menu. It's the intentions of both parties or all parties involved and whether everyone is there willingly and consensually and enthusiastically consenting to the activities and the actions and the activities being explored and indulged. And that's the difference. That's what separates the things you want to do now or the kinks you want to explore now from the way in which you were violated previously. That went down in a circumstance or situation where you were not consenting actively or your consent in that moment was meaningless because you were impaired by drugs or alcohol or you felt coerced or whatever the reasons are that you regard that experience now as Assault. Consent is the magic ingredient. And if you find yourself worried about the assaultiness of some of the play that you want to engage in, that if somebody looked at a picture of you doing impact play, they would think that that was violent, that that was a kind of assault. No, no, no. With consent, that is play. Cops and robbers for grownups with your pants off and orgasms. And you are in control of it in a way that you were not in control during this previous experience that once you named it, and recognized it for the violation or the assault that it was, you feel very squicked about. Well, name the activities that you engage in when you're in a kink space for what they are, which is consensual. Step back when you're about to do something with a new play partner or with your partner and have a second where you ask yourself and maybe you incorporate this into your relationship with your partner where we need to check in. We just need to have a moment where we step out of roles and we determine that yes, this is what I want to do and my consent is enthusiastic and we just zoom out for a moment to make sure that this isn't something that three months or six months from now I'm going to regret or 
name in such a way that will deprive me of these pleasures and these joys that I've experienced in these kink spaces. But that's the big kink issue generally. Specifically, this weekend seems to me that going would be setting up your relationship with your partner for failure. Seems to me that under those circumstances, there is no way that he can come through for you in the way that you need him to come through for you. That's what you learned at that previous kink event. Whatever the activities that you two engaged in afterwards, you needed a degree uh, and a, an intensity of compassion and cuddling and aftercare or whatever else it was that you needed that he didn't provide for you. Going into a three-day situation that the odds are good that he is not going to be able to come through for you the whole time, the way you needed him to come through for you last time, just setting yourself up for failure, sabotaging your relationship. So unless you have an additional partner that you can bring along so that there's always someone there for you, if it's not him, I would eat the price of those tickets, not go, book tickets so that you can look forward to another kink event in the future where it's just going to be you and your partner. Hi, Dan. So I am a 27-year-old female in Canada in a long-term five-year relationship with my fiancé, 28-year-old male. So we are Polly and Swinners, and he went to a sex club, which was fine, and he went without me because I was working, and that was fine. And he stayed with two different women. It was in a different city. And so he had sex with these two women that he stayed with, plus another woman at the club. All fine. But he, on his way home, sent me a text saying that he had unprotected sex with the first woman um, on the first night that he was there. And that's a hard boundary for us. That's a deal breaker. I've told him numerous times I'm not willing to be in a relationship with someone who has unsafe sex with strangers. And this is the second time he's done this. He did this once with his first girlfriend while, since we've become Polly. And there was the whole process of building trust after that. And we were just getting to that point where, like, I wasn't having anxiety whenever he'd have sex with other people. And then he did this. And so I lost my shit. He came home. I lost my shit more. He lost his shit because he made a big mistake and can't take it back. And that fucking sucks. So now I'm at the point where, like, I'm calm and I like to work on things because I don't think it's fair to throw away an entire relationship because of a mistake, even if it's the second mistake and not the first mistake. But I don't know how we could rebuild trust. Like, how do you rebuild trust after a betrayal like that, where, like, it was a really clear boundary that had been, like, well talked out? And he did that. And like, how do we do, like, I don't know, I don't know if the answer is for us to, like, not sleep with other people, which also isn't feasible for me. I have another dedicated partner who would be one-sided monogamy, and I don't know if that's reasonable, but I don't see how I could be comfortable with him sleeping with other people. I don't know how I can trust him. I just don't, like, I want this to work. I want us to be able to fix this and work, but I just, I can't see it. We are in therapy, so hopefully that'll help. But I just, if you have any advice on how someone rebuilds trust after a second betrayal, I would really like to hear it. Someone who breaks a deal breakery rule, not once, but twice repeatedly, is someone who wants out from under that rule or out of that relationship. And the repeated breaking of the deal breakery rule is the slamming the hand down on the self-destruct button or the eject button, or it's screaming at the person that they agreed to this rule. I don't intend to honor this rule going forward, obviously. 
So that's something to discuss in therapy with him, what exactly it means when he breaks this rule, what's going through his head, whether it means he wants out of this relationship or out from under this rule. And if you are not willing to let him out from under this rule and he can't be trusted not to engage in unsafe sex if he is unsupervised, then you may need another rule that supersedes this rule or that complements this rule. He is not allowed to go to the sex club alone. He is not allowed to play without you because he needs mommy there to put the condom on his dick. Is that the kind of relationship that you want to have? A relationship with somebody that you can't trust fully? Someone that you'll have to supervise endlessly so that he won't violate you in this way, so he won't put you at risk, an increased risk in this way? That's a question that only you can answer and only you for yourself. Hey, Dan. Um, this is a response to the person that called expressed that her parents are wealthy and they want her to move to Seattle and buy a house. Your advice was to, you know, do your own life and not let your parents control you. But it sounds to me like her parents maybe give her a lot of money and feel entitled to her decisions. And if that is the case, then I would say you should probably disentangle yourself. I don't know if you're working, but you should probably work hard and make money and not rely on your parents because as long as they give you money, they will feel entitled to your decisions of what you're doing with it. Hi, Dan. I'm calling for the guy who was asking about cock rings. And I kept waiting for you to say one of my favorite parts about cock rings is for the ladies. We, me and my boyfriend uh, love our cock ring because it has a clip stimulator on it as well. So it's been the first and only way I've been able to come from PIV um, because of the clip stimulation uh, while he has the cock ring on. And it's just fabulous. So it's a great plus for the ladies, too, if uh, you guys want to try it. Highly recommend. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the cock ring call from your latest episode, and I just wanted to add a PSA from your friendly neighborhood ER nurse. If you want to experiment with cock rings, buy a cock ring. Every so often, a guy will come in who has decided to use his wedding ring as a cock ring. Yes, this really happens. Unfortunately, a lot of wedding rings are also made of tungsten or titanium, which are really fucking hard to get off. We have to use a special saw. Furthermore, should you find yourself with something, wedding ring, cock ring, elastic band, around your penis that you can't get off, go to the ER. Don't wait a day or longer to see if the situation will resolve itself. It won't. And the longer you wait, the less likely you are to have a functioning penis. Have fun. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Come see me live in Denver on May 10th. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events for tickets. Also at savagelovecast.com, you can subscribe to the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. Twice as long, more guests, no ads. Go to savagelovecast.com to become a Magnum member. Also at SavageLoveCast.com you can get Savage Lovecast t-shirts, mugs, books, and at itmfa.org you can get ImpeachTheMotherfuckerAlready.com hats, t-shirts, swag, lapel pins, stickers, itmfa.org Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Sunny and Ken on Twitter at AmericanSexPod. 
the Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me, the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.